Welcome to The Deal with Yield, your podcast series for covering the issues that matter most in crop production. I'm John Zook, agronomist for Winfield United. And I'm Kyle Reiner, district sales manager for Winfield United. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing weather variables, and we're going to walk through some scenarios with you guys right now. So Kyle, there's a lot of things going on in the spring. We know, I mean, start getting planters out in the yard. You start thinking about what's going down in the field. Tile lines, at least for the northern Midwest, start to open up. Some water starts to move out. What are some key things you think we got to start paying attention to before we really get off into the field and start working ground and getting ready for planting? I think one of the things that I remember coming off of last fall, and this isn't speaking for everybody in the country, but we were extremely, extremely wet last year. And so we put the ground to bed really wet. And we didn't have really deep frost in the north. So that might have helped a little bit with the tile line staying free and to move a lot of that water. We had a great break in the weather here in March. Mm-hmm. And uh, that opened up the doors and some positivity in some of the farmers on thinking, hey, this could possibly happen yet in April. And prior to that, it was, uh, we're setting ourselves up for another 2019. Yeah, we went to bed really wet. You think it would have froze really hard and quick and fast and deep. I was watching soil temperatures on the MDA website, and our six inch soil temperature all the way through the wintertime was 31, 32. It was right on the border of freezing. And we had some negative 30 degree, you know, above ground weather. But because we had that moisture profile in the ground and we had such a thick blanket of snow, I think that kept our, it, our frost maybe went deep, but it wasn't froze hard enough to really make that difference. So now that everything is kind of thawing out, we got some 60 degree days coming, planters will start rolling. I think now it's a matter of, we're going to start to see tile lines here shortly and it's going to get fit pretty quick. When we get in the field, and one of the things that I always look at right off the bat is this soil moisture. So we know there's a lot of moisture in the profile. It's a matter of thawing that out and, and getting it to move down. How do we know when it's fit? I mean, how do we go out and look at it? Well, the old analogy is if you pull your pants down and sit on the ground for a while out there and your butt cheeks don't freeze, then it's usually time to start planting. No, with all seriousness, so it's soil temps, obviously we want to be focusing on 50 degrees or above for planting. So that 50 degree mark, I mean, most of the time in my neck of the woods, we're driving over snow banks to get into the field. And we get 50 degrees like, hey, at noon 30 at an inch and a half, not even talking about where we're going to be putting the seed and what's coming. So, I mean, that's okay, I think, because we've been doing it for that long. But I think then you think about, well, how do we get that seed off to the right start? Yeah, the big key there is all the plans that you put on through the winter and last fall, right? What did we plan on doing? Because if a good person doesn't have a plan, it's just a wild guess on what's going on. And it's going to be a disaster in the spring. But, you know, placement, how deep are you going to plant? What nutrients and how close are they going to get to the seed? Those are the key things to start that seed off well. In your mind, John, how do you foresee any kind of applications of nutrients during planting and how far, you know, on either side of the seed or directly on the seed should they be? When I think about nutrient applications at planting, there's only two that I even care about, and that would be phosphorus and zinc. 
So phosphorus is super important for that pop-up effect. I mean, that's why we call it a pop-up starter. But it's the energy source for that corn seed to come up out of the ground. So phosphorus is that energy source. And I always refer to zinc as the forklift. But really what zinc is doing is it's moving all the sugars and starches that are stored in the test weight of that corn kernel and feeding them to that embryo. So it's moving all that energy over and feeding it back to the embryo so we get that effect of coming up out of the ground quick and even. And that's how we know we start that corn crop off to a good start. I think a lot of fears, in, uh, especially in the northern United States, is if we plant and the grounds aren't quite 50 degrees and we get some weather event that comes in and we start dropping some really cold rain, why don't we walk through this inhibition? You know, every year it's mm-hmm. the same story. Is it going to come up? Is it not? Is it 24 to 48 hours after we place the seed? Did it have enough time? Are we setting ourselves up? Can you walk us through on on what your opinion is on this whole imbibing process and the water movement into the seed to get the process started? So after we do that, can we argue about planting depth? We can. Okay. Okay. So so really, I think this imbibitional chilling, it's real. I've been on too many calls to say that it's not. What I can't say is, can I predict if it's going to happen? Because sometimes, for an example, last year we got a snow and the guys have planted kind of right before the snow, right next to it, you know, 24 hours minus, actually stands came up fine. But the guys that planted 24 hours before and two days out, we started to have some issues. So then it makes me wonder is, hey, you put the corn seed in the ground, it's got to suck in moisture. If that first drink of water is cold, what happens is those cells get that cold, rigid cell wall. It starts to rehydrate. It's cold and rigid. And then all of a sudden they start to divide and replicate and they start to burst. And that's where you get the death. And when you see that corn plant kind of doing that spirally corkscrew thing, you know that there's some cells that died on one side of the plant that didn't die on the other. And that's why it's in this spiral of death kind of formation. And that's kind of a key indicator of imbibitional chilling. And I think if it's going to happen, it's probably going to happen within that 24 to 48 hour time frame before that cool weather comes in. Now you can play poker all day long, but I mean, do you want to plant right up until it starts snowing or do you want to right up to until that cold rain? Or is it maybe best to wait a few days and, and see what it's going to turn out? I guess we can argue about that. But what I would say is making sure that that phosphorus and zinc are in play probably are going to help a lot of that because that's going to remember when it takes that first drink of water it's going to get that suck of energy with the phosphorus and the zinc right away as well that'll help it thrive through a lot of that so i think imbibitional chilling is definitely real it's a matter of putting finger on how it's going to occur and then some seed varieties are maybe a little bit more responsive to cold soil than what others are too based on what we're finding so you're saying when I stop at the ice cream shop and I get a Mr. Misty or something that and I suck it down real fast and my brain starts going crazy with brain freeze, it's similar to a corn seed? Yeah, definitely so. Yeah, only lasts a lot longer. I'm sure you can recover quicker, Kyle. And I don't spin around on the ground for a while and figure out which way's up. Well, I don't know. I've never seen you. I've never seen you get a brain freeze before, so I guess I can't verify there. But uh, maybe I think you can pull through a little quicker. The thing is, is some of this corkscrew corn, I've seen it come out of it, and but we have uneven emergence, and then we're fighting ear set through the rest of the season. So you might say, hey, it's coming out of it, it corkscrewed. But if you start cutting those crowns, middle part of the season, V5, V8, those crowns don't look very healthy. And we're a lot more susceptible for in-season issues than what we would have just had that corn come up and, and come even and, and see the sun right away. 
and some of the processes too. And they get real close to the surface, it starts getting warmer, and, and a lot of times the seed will just flat out run out of energy. And then you get some leafing underneath. And we do some practices up here that sometimes I wonder if they make sense or not. Dragging fields or running rotary hose, you know, if we get out of crust like that. But just be out walking your fields, digging up plants, and figuring out what's really going on. Yeah. All right, John, back to the who's right and who's wrong. What's the planting depth? What do you think should be the planting depth of corn? So I really think planting depth is a matter of consistency and not actual depth. I mean, I've been in the field with three different agronomists because maybe the farmer wants to see multiple opinions. And heck, when we're digging up the same seed, one guy's going to call it an inch and a quarter. The next guy going to call it an inch and three quarter, depending upon how you lay your little stick across the furrow and then measure it, right? So I don't think it's about that. But what I always like to do is I take a, the old school license plate method that I learned from a farmer. So I take an old license plate and I peel back that soil profile and I basically cut the furrow in half and peel back and look at the seeds. And I want to look at at least 10 seeds in a row. And if I can see that, if I peel that soil back and I look at those 10 seeds in a row or or whatever I end up digging, and they're all consistently placed and consistently spaced, that makes me feel a lot more comfortable about planting depth than if it's, if I got one that I can, because once you look at those seeds in a row, you can, it's not even about measuring them anymore. It's about just saying, hey, can I see that one's a quarter inch off and a quarter inch deeper and pretty soon you got half inch swings. And that's going to dramatically affect your emergence. So, so really the argument on planting depth is a non-issue as long as I can gain consistency. Now, it's a non-issue as long as you're, in my opinion, I want to be deeper than, I want to be an inch and a half to two inches, okay? Some guys like to go a little bit deeper than two inches, fine. Find the moisture, feel what's comfortable for you. But as long as you can consistently put it that deep, that's really what I care about. My theory is to plant a little deeper because people tend to drive a little faster. And when you're driving, if you don't have the field preparations done just perfect and you're bouncing over root balls or hitting rocks or changing different soil types and your planter plants deeper in some soil types, shallower in some soil types. So I always go with like inch and three quarter to two, which we're really splitting hairs at that point anyway. But speed is a big caveat in all these conversations. And just because you see a rain cloud coming doesn't mean you can kick it up a gear or two, even though you might finish that field isn't the best scenario for it. But I have done some stuff out in, in fields with these high-speed planters, and they design the planter to be able to plant 7 to 8 to 9 miles an hour. And if your field preparation is done right, it's perfect. It plants exactly like it's supposed to. But I tell you what, when you hit a rock on seven, eight, nine miles an hour with that plant opener, it does a lot of damage mm-hmm. to your planter. So if you live in a perfect spot where you don't have rocks, root balls, or anything to bounce over, you can plant that fast, go for it. Because it'll happen and it'll be perfect. Yep. So big square fields are really conducive to that. I don't always have that advantage. So what I like to see is, again, just going back to, hey, go as fast as you need to go, but making sure that you're stopping the tractor, getting out and digging up and looking for consistency and not just trying to tell yourself that you're perfect. Go to a spot where you think it was kind of dicey and check it out because that's going to give you a real good idea how the rest of the field is going to look. And I always want to scout the worst parts of my field first because that'll it only gets better from there, right? So taking a chance and going on the headlands where you need more downforce to get it into the ground and then across the middle parts of the field where you do tend to pick up the speed a little bit and you see those units bouncing, stop and check it out. And the thing is, as we get rolling and we just want to keep moving, 
but I've always gotten the call or everybody always drives by that farm where go, Ooh, was he paying attention there? Did he? And, uh, and so stopping and checking that is, is pretty important because how it comes up is part of what we're really proud of to, to look at it. And, and it does affect our yield bottom line. Go through your meters. Hopefully you've all done that all winter long here. Every year I get a phone call. Oh, the guy pulled a planter out and just thought it was all set up for corn and he had it set on bean, on the bean settings last year. What should we do? Or the guy switched from corn to beans and forgot to switch it over. And we actually had a whole field planted last year in 34,000 soybeans. How did it yield? It was in the 40s, believe it or not. The stems were as thick as my thumbs and I was like, holy, but the weed pressure come. But uh, believe it or not, it yielded really well. Did it cut? It cut. So you... And I'm not promoting 34,000 planting on beans, but just don't get in a rush. We only do this 35, 45 times in our lifetime. Just get out the planter. Sometimes you need to just take a deep breath and go out and make sure everything's working fine. So you asked me about nutrients, and I kind of... Did my foss and zinc here's where you need it i want it on the seed so when it imbibes moisture it gets those in it i always get questioned too i mean nitrogen sulfur do we do an extra two by do we put it over the top i mean what are your feelings on that should we be doing anything at planting look i think any kind of plan that was done in the winter there's usually a theory behind it we have farmers that do two by twos we do two by zeros obviously we don't want to get a lot of certain nutrients on the seed to where it causes a burn so moving over and making sure that happens and if you do hit a big rock make sure that it's still over two inches and it's not dropping on your seed but yeah sulfur is a big deal Uh, nitrogen putting more nitrogen on in some areas you got 25 to 30 percent of your nitrogen needs put down last fall look if it's ready to plant plant we have plenty of options out there don't sit with your planter up in the yard waiting for your retailer to come out and spray on there because they're working their butt off doing a lot of stuff but look we're 50 percent of the nitrogen needs can't get done in three or four days so get it planted they can do uan over the top you can do urea over the top with some kind of nitrogen stabilizer there's a lot of options out there so yeah so the beautiful thing about nitrogen and sulfur is they're mobile so it kind of plays right into it is no sense waiting around if the field is fit and it's time to go plant it and i think there's a lot of options to get back in and and we're kind of coming off of a year where maybe that's what we should have done more of in 2018 just to get the crop planted who knows i mean looking forward to 2019 spring and yeah, we're all excited for this growing season after last year and now some places had great last year crops but there's a lot of areas that was terrible mm-hmm. and we don't want to relive that situation and i think a lot of the plans the doom and gloom that's in the country it's hard to forget sometimes and we're a little bit stubborn and we just need to have the best thoughts going into the season do everything possibly right mother nature controls a whole big huge portion but we have to be able to handle the stuff that we can control. Mm-hmm. There's maybe one tweak that I might make to a nitrogen application in the spring. And I've been getting a lot of feedback on this is 
a lot of guys are doing like a nitrogen broadcast in the spring or, or spraying down a herbicide with a pre, or they're putting it on in their plant, you know, another system on their plant or a two by two by two, two by zero. But what I a lot of times find is they're not, we're not mixing sulfur with it. So if there's one small tweak to change that nitrogen use efficiency, as we call it in the plant, is add some sulfur in. So I always say if you're adding nitrogen, sulfur should always be with it. And if that's not the case in your program, then I'd say that putting some sulfur in is going to pay dividends. And cost-wise, I think it kind of sits in there very similar to nitrogen cost. So it's not like it's extra money. And I'd be okay with just, hey, pulling a little bit of nitrogen out, slamming some sulfur in there because there's definitely some efficiencies in uptake when you have nitrogen and sulfur together. So that would be one small tweak that probably could be made if, if that's not already being done. So with that being said, John, what product, what sources of sulfur would you use it at what rates? What kind of ratios are we looking at keeping things? So ratio-wise, I think a lot of the ratios would play later into the season when we can actually take a tissue sample. But a foundation is probably important for the nitrogen and sulfur component. So I do like a, if I had a, if somebody pinned me down, Kyle, like you are kind of now and saying, hey, what's my, I'd probably do like an eight to one nitrogen to sulfur as applied and hoping that in the plant I would see like a 10 to 1, 12 to 1 is kind of where I'd hope, but they're both mobile. And at different organic matters and and all this other stuff, we do have the variables, but that's probably where I would start. Sometimes I'm a lot more aggressive. For products, pick whatever product you got in your plan. Is it urea and AMS? Or more so, are you doing urea and you don't have AMS in it? Well, you should have AMS in it. Are you doing 32 or 28 and you don't have ammonium thiosulfate in it? You should have ammonium thiosulfate. So I guess maybe it's not the amounts of sulfur, but it's having it with it to get yourself started. If there's one thing I've seen the most of in the last two years was sulfur deficiency post V15. And it all starts in the beginning is having that sulfur there to bring that nitrogen in. Because what the plant will start doing is robbing nitrogen from the bottom and that'll flash that sulfur on the top. So I think it's got to be a combinatory approach there to get both of them in there. So John, if we look back in our rearview mirror from 2018, certain things stick out in my mind that we learned from last year. Some good things, some things we go, maybe I should have done it different. What things really stick out in your mind of, hey, this was a great idea. I wish I would have done more of it. Or, man, I really learned my lesson from that one. The one thing that really sticks out is taking the opportunity to be in the field when you have it. And I mean, that could be a lot of things, right? That's kind of wide open. Is it a nutrient application? Is it picking rock? Is it a cultivation? Whatever it might be. Or is it weed control? So weed control probably is the biggest one that sticks out in my head for 2018 because for a lot of the spring applications that we made in a great amount of the upper Midwest is if you didn't do a pre-emerge in the spring, there was probably little getting back and doing any. And weed control went off the handle after that. And we know that this year's crop is going to be soybeans. So trying to manage those weeds and that seed bank on top into soybeans, to me, it kind of sets ourselves up for a monstrous task. So I think getting across those acres when we can and taking all advantages in the pre-emerge herbicide really sets us up for that. So kind of talked a little bit about the nitrogen application. What do you think? Pairing it up with that? or Yeah, you got uh, nitrogen application, obviously, with your pre biggest thing that I learned last year was how well the pre's worked. For the amount of rainfall we had, I would have never guessed they would have lasted as long as they did. But we tend to go a little higher on the spectrum as far as rates per acre, because if we don't start clean, 
it doesn't stay clean, right? So yes, I think we would have done a little bit more nitrogen with the pre. Now looking back, and I think there's more thoughts going through and making plans this winter for that. But the pre's are huge, corn and soybeans. You alluded to earlier the seed bank. Why, if you're still looking at a half rate of soybean pre coming off last year's in some of these areas, it's going to be a disaster. So it might be a little more expensive, but it's going to be well worth investment. And looking at weed emergence, we can knock out the big two, three right away in the spring with the pre, and that gives us the foundation to hold off the water hemp, the palmer for if you're down south. It gives us the defense to hold those off without playing an emergency button on the first giant ragweeds, lambs, quarters, commons that come up right away in the spring. I just look at the one specific herbicide is in the PPO family. PPO family, I think, works so much better as a pre than it does as a post. So trying to take care of some of these weeds before they even emerge. We've done other episodes in the past where we're not promoting kicking beer cans or pop cans out the tractor to get a measurement on size. But people tend to exaggerate, well, it's, it's not that tall. Well, when you're looking at certain weeds out there that maybe you missed with a field cultivator, and you go back out there, they're, they're probably 10, 14, maybe 2 feet tall. And you're expecting a lot of a herbicide that's not as great on that size of weed. Yeah, no, everything over that uh, four-inch mark, which is probably something I can't even see driving by, and I got 2015 vision, is probably going to be a downright disaster. And that's what a pre is going to help us from ever getting to that point. Any weed that gets over one inch, over four inches, is a 2 to 3% yield loss. So... If people put that in perspective on potential, we spend a lot of money on nutrients every year. And if we're going to have weeds out there sucking it up and not giving it to our crop, we need to really evaluate what we're doing as a plan. So we're always looking to improve the Deal With Yield listening and experience. If you visit dealwithyield.com backslash survey, so you type in dealwithyield.com backslash survey, you can find a link to the survey. If you take the survey, you will be entered to win an Amazon gift card. Thanks. You've been listening to the Deal With Yield podcast. For more episodes, find us on iTunes, Podbean, and thedealwithyield.com. 